0: So it's a real pleasure to introduce um, Sam Ford, or to reintroduce an alum and a regular presence in our midst.
1: Can't get rid of me.
0: (laughs) And uh, Federico Rodriguez-Tarditi, both from the Fusion Media Group. And they're going to discuss today um, at least what can be said, considering that this is a podcast, uh, about their experiences at at Fusion uh, in the domains of innovation and engagement. Uh, Fusion is a really interesting group. It's now owned completely by Univision, Disney and ABC having stepped out, and um, Univision having stepped in, and it gives it, I think, a lot more control, will make it an even more interesting place in some ways. There are a lot of ways to understand what Fusion does, and at least my take, but will probably be corrected very quickly here, is that it's kind of an R&D lab, it's an experimental space within the larger world of big institutional broadcasting like uh, Univision. They're emphatically multi-platform, pitched at millennials, doing a ton of interesting stuff and doing stuff with an edge, doing stuff with an ideological edge. Uh, Social justice is really important in a lot of the work they do. Uh, in terms of mainstream organizations, they're doing some of the most progressive stuff uh, out there and I'm really, I, I hope that continues. That should be, uh, kudos to some of the projects that are coming down the pipe. On things like gerrymandering, uh, we'll hear more. I don't want to say anything because I don't <laughs> know what should be said or should. But it's really interesting stuff. Sam uh, and, um, and Federico have been in the unusual position. Their unit, I um, mean, Sam is, I should give you a title here, your vice President for Innovation and Engagement, or is it Engagement and in Innovation?
1: Any order you want. Okay. <laughs> I negotiated two vague buzzwords in my title. I like to tell everybody so that if people start to nail down what one means, I Should emphasize lie. that I mostly focus <laughs> on the other. And it
0: means you're out there working among many different constituencies: foundations, NGOs, universities, uh, other partners in the industry, and of course within his own organization. So it's kind of like the like the, the neural network, in a way, um, of the place. And that gives them, I think, a privileged position, both in terms of trying to connect parties that might not otherwise connect, and connect ideas, and come up with ideas that within any one part of the organization might not be so visible, including organizations like Dallas. And we're working with Sam. I know uh, Fusion has a relationship with MIT through the Media Lab, um, and probably others as well. So, so yeah, it's a really interesting space. Um, Maybe a few words about Sam. Sam did his master's here. I was his uh, thesis advisor. It was a terrific thesis on soaps. And the kind of thesis for a lot of the uh, first year students here tonight, uh. the kind of thesis <laughs> guaranteed you like the fast draft in, in the industry. Because this tried, to, <laughs> this tried to argue that simply understanding soaps as TV content misses the point. Uh, these things have been around for like what six to seven years in some Eight. cases, eighty years?
2: Eighty-six,
0: 86 years. <laughs> <laughs> and Sam argued that if we rethink them as brands, that helps us then to understand things like fandom, which for like TV advertisers is not necessarily interesting, but in terms of building communities, in terms of getting this thing out there, in terms of pushing it across platforms, in terms of working across generations, actually soaps at an incredible potential business model. Alas, the soap industry wasn't listening, but the smart guys in the room were, and Sam then was picked up by Peppercom, where you had a bunch of interesting titles. Um,
2: <laughs>
0: I'm not sure, well, let's see if I can find it. But it was, it was basically, um,
1: my, what, you were engagement. My last one was director of audience engagement. Audience engagement. Digital strategy, Digital at, strategy. at one point.
0: Yeah, so... Um, a really interesting story. So Sam has been very busy in the industry side, but he's also writes a lot. So you might read his, some of his articles in the Wall Street Journal or in uh, Fast Company, uh, Harvard Business Review. Um, he's been part of uh, two book projects: The Survival of the Soap Opera and Spreadable Media. Um, Lynn here was one of, the, one of the participants in this project. Um,
1: and William was one of the participants in our spreadable media project. It's true.
0: <laughs> and Sam has taught when he was here as a student. He's taught a couple of courses, one on American pro wrestling and one on soaps. And stayed on for a year as manager. Okay, so I, we can talk all, all night actually about what you've done here tonight. <laughs> um, Federico, for his part, is a you know kind of cut from the same cloth as I am to some extent. We're both uh, we both studied philosophy. Um, I figured out what to do with it, you're still kind of...
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Exactly.
0: But you're... Sorry, you're the um, project manager for Fusion's Center for Innovation Engagement, and I think those two components will come together, so I'm really curious to see how much you can say with the podcast. Yeah. uh, uh, But these guys have been doing great work, so let's give them a hand and welcome them.
1: Thank you. So I would... Be happy to have uh you guys ask questions as we go along, so don't feel like you have to wait until the end because we'll be two hours in and I'll <laughs> be on slide eight so um, the uh just to, to to fill in a couple of blanks I started well Federico and I both started with fusion um, a year ago uh, a year and a half ago I would say in the yep. center uh was not in formation in the fall when I started. It was sort of at that time trying to figure out what uh, innovation and engagement might look like uh, in our organization. So what I'm going to do today is a little bit different than what I'm used to doing in an academic setting. It's more uh, wholly on the industry side where I'm just going to share with you where we've netted out so far so that you guys can poke holes in it or ask questions about it. Uh, and hopefully learn something in the process because this has been an interesting ride I think for us over the last uh, the last year. One of the challenges that I faced uh, in taking a job that had both innovation and engagement in the title is that I have spent time writing about uh, how overblown and overhyped buzzwords are like innovation and engagement. So this is an article I wrote for Fast Company uh, about where innovation goes wrong. And it was actually based on, some of you guys might know, and I'll refer to his work again later, uh, the cultural anthropologist Grant McCracken, who's hung around these halls from time to time, uh, who wrote a great book uh, 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 called Culturematic, uh, about serendipity, and uh, part of it was about serendipity. And one of his arguments is uh, the Dewey Decimal System is what's wrong with innovation. So the fact that things get categorized in a specific place and there's no room for serendipity Within so many organizations, and so, and one of the things that concerned me about kind of the rise, I've spoken at a conference before called the front end of innovation. Have any of you ever heard of this conference? Someone asked me once, "Well, I I belong in the back end of innovation." It turns out there's actually a conference called the back end of innovation, (laughs) but it's about like the technological back end. Um, But uh, so I can literally say I've been to the front end of innovation, and what I found there was a lot of consulting firms talking about Apple and Uber and. Uh, a lot of people who'd been tasked in Fortune 500 companies with running innovation going to the front end to figure out what's going on. So, uh, you know, at the same time, uh, I've also been writing about all the ways that how both the advertising industry and the media industries understand and think about engagement uh, is also all wrong, (laughs)
2: Uh,
1: in in terms especially of uh, trying to focus on the things that can easily be counted and sold. Uh, so for me, uh, one of the concerns, actually, I'll quote. Uh, since he's walking his way down here, I'll quote Ilya Vedrashko, who said the ad industry knows how to ask two questions: who are they, who are they, and how many of them are there, and to build factories that can respond to that. And media, in, you know, media companies figure out how to answer those questions so that we can get some of those ad dollars. Um, so for me, thinking about engagement is to figure out can I carve out a space within the org. Uh, that is able to exist uh, in addition to or beyond or as an extension to uh, some of those core business questions that we have to think about and that's what led to the Fusion Media Group Center for Innovation and Engagement that is not the high-res logo and they actually (laughs) sent it to me before this event and I didn't even swap it out so I'm very they'll be very disappointed don't tell them they'll probably never listen to the podcast so You know, one of the cha- so one of the challenges that we face is how not to be, uh, you know, caught up in the buzzwords. The other challenge we face is, I think, I mean, I'm biased. I think I work for a particularly innovative company. Uh, for, uh, you know, on the one hand, I was this is probably the headline I've been most proud of since I've been at Fusion. There was a piece that said Fusion uh, just might be the most diverse media company out there. Part of our idea is you can't really cover the diverse spectrum of what America is today. Uh, if your newsroom doesn't look as you know as much like America as today as you can as you can make it seems kind of common sense to me, but it's certainly been a core part of our mission, you know. And another core part of our mission is to think about um, how uh, how we frame uh, our orientation. Right, Univision comes from a very different background than a lot of traditional major American media companies, meaning it it saw itself often as serving an audience that the mainstream American media didn't serve and thus to often be an advocate for that audience, to provide that audience something it's not getting elsewhere, which is a different orientation than the other big TV networks uh, that we have uh, uh, here. And so I'm interested in how that orientation spills over uh, to the Fusion Media Group brand. So Fusion with a heavy focus on social justice issues, with a heavy focus on trying to uh, represent the demographics of what America is becoming, uh, you know, has been a, a very interesting uh, organization to be part of. The other thing that's happened is astronomical growth. When yeah. we started, um, Fusion, as William said, was a joint partnership between Univision and um, Disney, uh, ABC, uh, Univision bought out Disney's half, and then uh, formed the Fusion Media Group, which includes The Root. If so, are any of you all familiar with the publication The Root, which serves African-American mm-hmm. audiences uh, focused on news and culture? Uh, what else we got in our portfolio? We got uh, a percentage of the onion the, got a, with yes. a lot of the different properties, AV Club, the click hole. Some of the layers of the onion, yeah. <laughs> with the right to acquire more layers if we want them. Yeah. Um, William, I remember you talked in one of my grad school classes about the onion and how when you peel it away, there's actually nothing at the center eventually. (laughs) There's something at the center of the onion, the media brand. Uh, And then uh, some of you guys may have seen, and we were in the news lately because we acquired all the Gawker brands. So, you know, we started a year ago thinking about what innovation looked like in this small upstart group. And now we are the Center for Innovation Engagement, all four of us, um, for the Fusion Media Group, which includes Jezebel and Kotaku and Gizmodo and The Onion and Clickhole and, and AB Vimeo. Club and Track Flama. Record. Yeah, so uh, this has been a very much of a moving target of a job in a, a department. But this is the mission that we had set ourselves up for, which is uh, to basically focus on new ways to tell stories. New ways to reach audiences, keep the audience, those audiences at the center of our coverage, and find ways for them to participate. In an organization, though, uh, again, where a lot of our folks are uh, pretty innovative. So, um, what we're trying to not do is replicate what so many talented professionals. I'll give an example. You know, we brought over from AJ Plus Meta. And a whole team of folks who manage a lot of our video production, who manage our social strategy, etc. You know, they don't need me tinkering with the best way to optimize our Instagram account. Um, I'm not going to be better than the teams who've been working at the forefront of that for years. So this gets down to, I'm going to borrow from Grant again, uh, he had a book called Chief Culture Officer uh, a few years back where he argues, you know, there's fast culture and there's slow culture. And I think uh, part, of, part of the argument of this book is that organizations need to focus on not just what they're doing internally, but watching the culture outside their walls, understanding it, and then um, responding to it. And that you have a lot of trend spotters and cool hunters. In the media industry, it's one of the most sort of reactive, competitive environments out there where as soon as someone tries this new thing you can do on Facebook, suddenly every brand wants to make sure within a month we're all doing it, and there's value in that. There's great value in that. What's harder, I think, to carve out are the kinds of questions that can't be rapid response, that can't necessarily lead to an immediate product that we're out experimenting with in a in a very public way. And that's a lot of what we uh, are focused on in our group. So, a little bit of the background and philosophy. The reason I came to Fusion uh, was directly from a project that I worked on here at CMS. Uh, I ran, helped run a research, found and run a research group that William was involved in called the Convergence Culture Consortium. Uh, That ran from 2005 to 2011 and uh, we published a lot of the work that came out of that in a book called Spreadable Media that I co-authored with Joshua Green and Henry Jenkins. Uh, And um, it turns out the CEO of our company likes reading University Press books, (laughs) apparently. Uh, And Called me up and was interested in in, uh, having me consult and matched me up with Federico, who had been doing some work. In fact, maybe you could speak a little bit about some of the work that you were doing in uh, Colombia prior to uh, joining. Yeah, I was working before
3: joining Univision and Fusion with the government of Colombia, basically helping to develop a set skill or a toolkit of innovative tools for companies and high school and colleges all over Colombia. And then I joined Univision I stayed there for a couple of months before Sam actually joined and then we had the huge task of defining what its innovation for fusion and what it is what does it mean for Univision as well so it was it was it was exciting because we didn't have any guidelines we had all of the freedom to think about what is innovation and actually set a, set the same standards that we want to achieve inside of the company
1: and that I think that it's a privileged position in media in my first meeting, I showed up and there was this huge table outside. It was a meeting outside, and it was just Federico and me at the table for a long time. So, you know, from that germ of a conversation, I think came the ideas of what we're, you know, excited. I'm excited now that we're actually, you know, implementing stuff today that that, that started last summer. Um, yeah, well, what about that? <laughs> this guy. Um, you know, the other thing that really uh, helped shape my way of thinking and Uh, certainly with the background in philosophy Federico shares it, is this idea of applied humanities, which is to say what are the ways of thinking that humanities brings to the table that might uh, bring a different spin on questions like innovation and engagement. To use one of the biggest academic buzzwords problematize uh, uh, notions of innovation and engagement and think about uh, ways that we can uh, you know seek out the sorts of voices that media companies don't work with as often or at least media companies our side to think about really interesting stuff that we can do with academic groups. I, uh, we used to run a conference here called the Futures of Entertainment and we had a panel once that was called At the Intersection of Ac- the Academy and the Industry. Very much focused on uh, how can media industries in the advertising and marketing world talk to and learn from media scholars uh, in ways that serve the interests of both, right, that don't lead to uh, academic institutions becoming research labs for the agendas of a media, the commercial agenda of the media company, and thinking about how we balance out those interests. So, I would say one of the things at the core of what we do is to work with a lot of different uh, officially, these are mostly official relationships here, a lot of different academic research groups and labs. And so, we'll be sprinkling in some examples from work we're doing with the USC Annenberg Civic Paths so or the Black Youth Project at the University of Chicago. Center for Civic Media, and just kicking off uh, some work starting this fall with the Open Doc Lab. Are some of the folks here in the room part of the Open Doc Lab, some of the students? <laughs> I knew a few of you were. But, so I'm very excited about, uh, about that. What I thought we'd do from here is to just spend our time giving examples of the kinds of things we're doing so far, so that you guys can tell us uh, what we, where we've gone wrong. So far. Yeah, and um. I, think, and I,
3: I think that it's important to m- keep in mind that Fusion is part of Univision, and that Univision is really a legacy media, where people have been working there for over 30 years who don't have a direct competitor. And Fusion was an answer to that. So it's important to think that Fusion is directly related to Univision, and that they have a problem with their demographic, is growing old. And Fusion was part of that answer. But Univision itself it keeps working on that answer.
1: Well that's a good point. So if you imagine Fusion already being a lab as a brand and in fact one of the things I was told when I joined is Fusion is a place to try things out that perhaps perhaps for instance Univision could then learn from and implement in ways that you know the company will fully acknowledge because of course the bulk of the business is still coming from you know sports broadcasts and those novellas and uh, you know our traditional news broadcasts etc. What are the kinds of things that Fusion can learn and also teach the parents? so uh, as an example, uh, one of the things that we focus on is trying to find interesting co-production opportunities working with outside groups and partners that go beyond what we can do in-house. We have some pretty, uh, you know, we have a lot of talented teams in-house, but, but there are a lot of things we don't do, and especially when you get to the experimental edge of the things that you can't set up, pro- are a media organization, you set a deadline you produce things, and you have to get things out. And when you say something, for instance, is going to lead to something in your <laughs> TV lineup, uh, it has to be done on the day it premieres. Uh, and and you know similarly so when it comes to the production of our of our digital content. So we often get called in when a team's trying to do something different and they don't quite know how to do it. Uh, often to help find not that we'll know, but to help <laughs> them think about who we need to bring in uh, to pull something off, or it might be bringing interesting projects uh, that we think would have a great home with the Fusion Media Group to the organization. Um, there are some examples of those in the works that I can't talk about. Um, I would love to tell you about them, but we will hopefully be able to this fall. But part of our job is to keep track of things that are happening, for instance, in the one of the reasons we're talking to the Open Doc Lab is you know, what's happening in the uh, kind of interactive documentary spaces uh, from independent teams that would you know, perhaps be of great interest to a company like Fusion, one of our brands that we could bring in. Um, in this case, uh, we have a, a documentary launching this month uh, about gerrymandering and voter suppression and all the ways that elections are rigged as a system. And Keith Suma, a uh, TV veteran, uh, he was involved in breaking the big tobacco story. Uh, he was at CBS for many years, worked with, uh, uh, or worked with Peter Jennings for many years. Uh, came to us and said, look, this is a systemic problem. One of the fun ways to explore it would be through a game because it's a systemic and logistical uh, problem. And so we came up and actually met with Open Lab and some of the games folks here, like Scott Scott, uh, Osterweil, Uh, as we were just trying to wrap our heads around what could that be. And it's also the idea is to actually explore understanding gerrymandering through the eyes of game developers who know nothing about gerrymandering as they're thinking about how to make a fun, casual mobile game that people could play that is a commercial game first so we so that was an interesting set of parameters we didn't want to go to the indie game scene or the activist game scene we wanted to actually in the end find a commercial company that makes games for the NBA and the Godfather and Tom Hanks and but then who were interested in could we make a game about gerrymandering and actually See if we could make that you know compelling and fun to play, but also tie into the journalism. So we have a project launching this month with a company called HitSense. Uh, they are based in Bowling Green, Kentucky. So am I. Um, uh, but they ended up. We talked to a lot of different game companies, and they were the guys who said uh, we're interested and we'd really love to to work with you on this. So uh, soon, uh, you know, this mobile game will come out that is more of a puzzle-based game, logic game. Uh, Scotty and Nick have played it, uh, it's, it's, it's challenging. Uh, and and then kind of connects that back to uh, another window into this exploration of gerrymandering because later this month we have an investigative special coming out uh, about voter suppression and, and gerrymandering. Um, we uh,
3: we have been doing co-production as well with the T-Bone Brunette mm-hmm. and Wise Entertainment.
1: Yeah, so we've been talking to some interesting guys. Um, Uh, about some interesting projects that, uh, again, can't tell you all the details (laughs) on. But uh, uh, some of you folks may remember T-Bone Burnett being here a few years ago at a conference. That got kind of fiery, but that's a whole other (laughs) story. Um, We'll have to watch the the video archives. Um, One of the things we're really interested in is in uh, VR, AR, interactive storytelling. Again, not as the makers, right? Federico and I don't make VR experiences you would not want us to Um, but we're often working with the teams who are uh, kind of leading the charge there. Uh, You know perhaps would it be good to show a little bit of the project we've been working on?
3: Yeah. All right. So a couple of years ago uh, Julian Reyes from Fusion started a project called Mars 2030 with NASA and MIT and uh, this is a short clip of that project.
1: And I want to be clear This is their project, not ours, but we've had the great fortune to kind of work with them all along the way. Federico's traveled the country with them, demoing it, thinking about how we expand it. I'll give you a quick glimpse.
3: This is coming out actually at the end of this year. It's going to be five episodes. Uh, What you see there is uh, uh, actually a surface of Mars called the Mars Crate. And it's replicated by true data that uh, was given by NASA. And the idea why NASA supported this project is to ramp up and excite young children about space exploration because they have a huge issue as well with uh, space exploration. Last thing they did was the, the 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 moon race, and now they want to think about how to engage with younger generations to get excited about NASA. And Julian Reyes is the lead the designer, and he has been working with uh, gaming companies, Nvidia, and he has been working with developers from Bioshock Infinite to all of different uh, properties, and it's a great team.
1: So you know, part of our role in all this is. Uh, also includes like us on Facebook, God, (laughs) those guys at Fusion. Um, (laughs) Is to think about going into thought leadership spaces where, you know, the, again, the bleeding edge of this discussion of how uh, uh, VR and creativity come together or how VR and documentary come together, and also all of the moral and ethical and uh, uh, engagement types of uh, questions that come along with that, you know, is to try to go to those spaces, be a part of those conversations, uh, so, there's a conference earlier this year called Versions that we uh, uh, were involved in and, and helped sponsor. And just thought I'd show a couple of clips from some of the events that we've been involved in. And this is more directly into what uh, Federico and I do. It won't in expand.
4: Mexico, Julie, And one of our frustrations was that a lot of the conversations were very much focused on the technology themselves. Um, not that there's anything wrong with technology, it's incredibly important, but we felt like there was another conversation that needed to be had about the role that creators are going to have in shaping the future.
1: We're in a time where a rectangular picture, a flat rectangular picture at the end of a rectangular box is no longer good enough. The experience
0: of going out to movie theater should be spectacular. So the more that
1: theater experiences, like going to the holodeck or something, you're going into a time machine or you're going into a space-time warp or you're going into a hologram or something, you want the field of view to be really big and wide, and you want the picture to be tall, and you want the picture to be very bright, and you want very high frame rate, and you want very high resolution, and you want a ton of really great sound,
5: symphonic sound
1: and then you have an experience that
6: is totally transformation.
2: I think we're so used to this idea that you sit and you you experience something um, based upon a frame that someone premeditates, but I think that you know VR is a very different thing, and um, as complicated as it is, and as much as it may be hard for some of us, and it may involve some rewiring in a lot of respects, but like how we craft experiences, how we see experiences, how we see editorial, how we see acting, how we see, you know, I, I think that,
1: That's an important um, thing for us to be okay with. So another one of the interesting spaces that we came to uh, was here uh, earlier this year for uh, how many of you all were at the virtually there conference that the Open Doc Lab put on? I knew I saw several faces I knew were there. And just wanna share a little bit of a piece that we haven't actually published yet. In fact, uh, probably will around the launch of the Mars 2030 initiative that we demoed there. to give you a little bit of an idea of what we did together with the Open Doc Club.
5: Technology has always helped humans understand the mysteries of our surrounding world, allowing us to engage with virtual tools that create new ways of perceiving reality. In the last year, we've seen a revival of a classic form of human and computer interaction, virtual reality. It's found its way back into technology markets. and It's growing at a fast and stable pace.
0: Developments in media industry are not always logical, but they are always financially grounded. And if you just look at where the dollars are invested right now, AR, VR, that's the
5: space. So the thing about virtual reality is it allows the user a feeling of being actually on scene. And by giving people that visceral sense of presence, um, it seems as if they understand stories more deeply and absolutely more quickly.
4: History of VR, um, which actually um, goes back uh, several thousand years. Um, It's not a recent um, sort of human endeavor.
2: It's always easier to tell the direction of change than it is to tell the pace of change.
4: Um, If you don't know where the wave is coming from, you can't catch it. But if you do know where the wave is coming from and when it's coming, now you're in a position when the wave comes to do something about it.
5: Virtually There is a conference sponsored by Fusion and created by the MIT Open Documentary Lab. It's an effort to bring together the most experienced and diverse minds who play an important role in this new medium. The venue became a stage for some of the most innovative experiences in the industry, including Mars 2030, a fusion virtual reality experience developed in the support of NASA and MIT.
0: So for gaming... I think VR is going to be huge. Uh, gaming is fairly immersive. It's often a
2: one-on-one thing. It's going to be terrific. The game industry is going to do the most coherent work in this space.
5: The concept of VR isn't new, but the ways that people are using it now are widening the spectrum of possibilities inside the media.
4: Um, I think the creative side is going to benefit um, greatly because you can now put it in the hands of creative people who could not otherwise have access to it. So from my perspective, it's just this kind of slowly morphing medium
0: and we're one more step than the last time I saw it and next, next month there'll be another step.
4: I'm interested in seeing that thing that actually just goes, wow, that's really something I never thought of, I've never seen before. So it's a very creative mix
2: right now we have to wait and see. That's why this is such an exciting moment to watch.
0: But watching that vocabulary take form, watching people kind of discover what the capacities of this are, that's terrific. that's inspiring.
1: So part of our role is in coming to spaces where conversations like this are happening, being a part of those conversations. Part of it is, of course, educational for folks within our organization, right? To bring uh, different sets of executives to conferences like this to engage them in the conversation, often who are not necessarily ready for what's happening at the cutting edge in terms of the experimentation we're doing in-house, but as inspiration, as ways of thinking, introducing possibilities. It's uh, uh, the team we work with at, at USC Civic Paths often talk about you know, trying to uh, stoke that civic imagination. I think it's very much the same in, you know, in any creative, endeavor, which is it's hard to to work towards something if you can't imagine what possibilities might be and and, and how we do that. Um, Joining us uh, here today, uh, the other two members of our team, uh, Nick Gilliard and Scotty Ellis, uh, who uh, joined our team in May. May. So when Federico and I first started, uh, we would come in and brainstorm with teams, and on the engagement side, we would often think about all these ways that we could encourage people to participate, all these ways we could engage with people, how are we reaching out to the people who are already passionate and dedicated to some of the topics that we cover? And one of the things we found, these were questions that often ended up being an unfunded mandate. We have a fantastic communications team at our, uh, at our company. They know how to pitch to the media who cover media and that's their main mandate. Uh, they know how to pitch to you know big publications. If we've got a TV series launching, to get uh, attention to that, to tell the stories of our organization, uh, we we have a great audience development team who run our social channels and try to you know optimize our content to be found on Google and uh, get as much traffic as we can. Now, the question we kept asking is, who you know whose job is it to take if we're doing a story on gerrymandering or. You know, our investigative team has done stories this year on the Panama Papers. We were one of the teams that helped, uh, were part of the consortium that helped break that story, uh, on mugshot exploitation industry, uh, on fentanyl addiction uh, before Prince made that a uh, big headline news. And in each of these cases, it was, uh, how do we eliminate the guesswork to just assume the people who care about these issues know that we've come out with an investigation about it and that we're also building relationships with the types of groups that are focused on the issues that we care about. And the answer eventually was, it's nobody's job and you guys are in charge of building a team that does that, which is the downside of suggesting new ideas <laughs> is it adds to your responsibilities. Yeah. Um, and I would say that's a conversation that happened throughout the fall and, and spring. And Nick and Scotty joined you yeah, and May, May. Said, so uh, They've been helping build a very specific job within the Center of Innovation Engagement, which is to think... How do we build out this community liaison role? How do we manage a database of the groups we reach out to across the Fusion Media Group? Uh, How do we think about how we don't do, you know, media companies know how to talk to outside groups in two cases. When we're making a product, our stories, or when we're trying to promote that product. So it's either can we interview you or will you please share this? Uh, And we're interested in moving beyond that part of the conversation. Of course, we would love if keep your Bible out of our vaginas shares one of our pieces. Um, That's not the main goal necessarily of reaching out to these groups. It's trying to understand also what are the underreported stories. If they're they're a group that's focused on this issue day in and day out, what is it they're not hearing? Uh, How is it we can take leads back to our journalists? But also, when it comes to journalism ethics standpoint, to separate that from the, from the newsroom, that it's not the journalists themselves who are often having these sorts of conversation, and we're under no, we have no ability or authority to say, yeah, we'll co- we're going to do a story on that, uh, that it's more that relationship building, and that it's not just about our agenda, but often the agendas of this, these groups. Um, this is a very much an evolving strategy, and perhaps when you guys have questions, you can aim as many of them as you want to at Nick and Scotty uh, rather than Federico and me when we get to the Q&A section. But there are similar kind of people who have similar parts of functions, but I'd also love to know know, if there are other news organizations that you guys know of that have similar roles and teams because we're trying to think of what are the right set of goals and KPIs to set against this? And how do we make sure it doesn't become, for instance, only measured by uh, how many shares you can get for a, a, a priority story? that we're pushing out, even if that could be a a beneficial byproduct. Yeah, a lot of our job is thought leadership as well. Helping sponsor conferences, we've already talked about some of them. Going to conferences, speaking at conferences, being part of uh, boards and and kind of going to spaces where people aren't mainly thinking about us. Uh, Spaces that aren't like tonight, where it's all about the Fusion Media Group and we can learn from what's happening elsewhere, and also contribute to that, you know, at some of these conferences we're there and we're not talking primarily about what we're doing at all, but rather questions uh, about the future of the field that I think are the kinds of things that we want to uh, explore. And part of that leads to academic publishing. And one of the things, as we talked about my coming aboard, was continue doing academic work. So I teach a class every semester and on pop culture studies, and of course I do work in fusion media group content when I Hand, and I also look for ways to, to do collaborations with our partners. So we're looking to play around in my class this semester with technologies like Bojo that, that Sasha uh, works on, uh, or uh, uh, Media Breaker, which is from a group called The Lamp. Uh, if you guys haven't uh, checked out what they're doing, you should, or Deep Stream and Fold, which are projects that came from uh, CMS and uh, Media Lab alum. Uh, to find ways to use the classroom as a, as a way to explore new modes of engagement that indirectly, perhaps, you know, Fusion can learn from as well. But, I mean, my essays in these books are often about, for instance, pro wrestling fans and um, uh, what we can learn from the ways they rebel against the storylines of uh, the show when they try to, when the writers try to keep Daniel Bryan down, for instance. Nobody probably got <laughs> WWE reference, that's all right. And, and, you know, so I, I, I'm writing a book right now about the finale or uh, an essay right now about the finale of As the World Turns and how hard it is to end a, sh- a story that never ends uh, and the challenges. I'm writing an essay as well about representations of masculinity in, in, in pro wrestling. Um, and this is, you know, the joke here is this is this guy who played a British aristocratic character who then became a blue collar working class construction worker and a new parody character. And he was called the real man's man. Um, but for, you know, for us in, in general, it is how do we find ways to spend time thinking about things that aren't happening in our company, uh, to go to spaces where we're engaging with people, you know, again, where serendipity can happen, to go to places like the Society for Cinema and Media Studies and the Pop Culture Association, and, and then see what ideas might come about unexpectedly that we could bring back in. Um You know, we're also uh, doing stuff with our partners. So our USC team we work with launched a book uh, this year called By Any Media Necessary, uh, the new youth activism. And so we did things like host a book launch party, bring interesting people together in New York City who care about youth activism and, you know, talk and think about uh, what we could do together. And of course, ended up with some interesting groups to collaborate with by the end of the the afternoon. Um, One of the things we're doing as well is thinking about research. So... With um, with USC Civic Paths, for instance, uh, as their team, which focuses on understanding youth activism, as their team came to work with us, uh, they said, why don't we do an audience experience? Which is, if you're an activist that cares deeply about a certain set of issues, what is your experience engaging with fusion? Uh, if If you already care deeply about transgender issues, and that's the issue that you're really focused on, what does it mean to engage with this with this news brand and what can and how do we think about you know most media companies think about the average audience right the the audience the unique the unique you're trying to get a month the kind of layperson who's not necessarily finding your content on purpose who's not seeking you out uh, how do we also think about the user journey of the people who really care about the issues that we also care about editorially and how we serve them and so it's been a really interesting ongoing project and work with them to have this complete outside perspective to say, you know, these are the ways that the brand serves us well and these are the ways that they, that they don't. Um, You know, also when it comes to research, one of the things that we discovered, Federico and I, you can see our headshots on this, realized there were all these people around the Fusion Media Group and all these different brands who were doing research and insights work that didn't know one another. So one of the things that we've done is we've created a research summit and formed a research council that crosses across the Fusion Media Group so that there are folks from The Onion and El Rey uh, and uh, several different parts of Fusion uh, who are now coming together and talking about how we do research, how we think about it, the different uh, ways we're serving different internal groups, and then to connect into all those folks who do the big brand studies at Univision, right, because they've got a massive Nielsen team and a massive team that thinks about uh, ad sales type of support and research, and how do we work together? How do we connect all these dots uh, from teams that don't necessarily know one another, right? And often from brands that we have acquired over the course of the past year, where we don't necessarily even know one another's organizations well. And I know Federico as well, uh, you've been working with, uh, how many of you all are, uh, work with the Center for Civic Media? Uh, Media Cloud. Yeah, so we've also been working with Media Cloud, which is a tool that's that's built there, perhaps you could just say a couple of words about that work since you've yeah. been leading it up. We've been working with uh, Media Cloud. Uh, the
3: first case that we had was with Prison Kids, a documentary about youth incarceration. Um, and basically what we measured there was the impact that our documentary had on the overall conversation about youth incarceration. So we measured the basically the volume and the frequency of the words used before our documentary went on air and after. And we mapped out the different terms we mapped out the different conversations before and after the whole program and uh, we are continuing to do that with different uh, vocabularies and terms uh, for univision is really important the the word immigration versus uh, some some sort of of a basically concept of illegal immigration versus legal immigration and that's something that we're trying to do at Univision and something that we're pushing towards and trying to change the conversation online. And uh, we've done it for uh, the same as the Sam was mentioning, fentanyl addiction. So we saw that we actually had an impact there on different media. And then media started to talk about fentanyl addiction after we came out with our documentary at Fusion and that the conversation held, the volume of the conversation held higher than before our, 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 our documentary aired. So we are doing a lot of research with them. We're doing basically terms that we find that are important both for Univision and the Hispanic market, and for Fusion and the multicultural demographic that we're trying to target.
1: Yeah, one of the things Federico found, just I and mean, we haven't published any kind of story with this, but Media Cloud, for those of you who don't know, uh, it's basically you know imagine like a Lexus Nexus sort of. Repository of news articles, printed news articles, uh, and the tool basically you know scans all the words across all those articles to understand around an issue what's the discussion that's happening in the media? Do we understand the outlets that are participating in that discussion? Does language shift so you know undocumented immigrants versus illegal immigrants pulls up a very different set of related terms, a very different set of publications, a very different set of circumstances I think. Yeah one of the things you mentioned was That's, the types of stories yeah. that illegal are often associated with versus undocumented illegal
3: that they're most associated with illegal was terrorist and undocumented was children so you can see that there's a big mm-hmm. perception and a big different shift of of focus there if you use the term undocumented
1: versus illegal so for fusion as a brand for instance we often focus on underreported stories and as i've heard leaders say you know sometimes success Best case scenario of success looks like you get other news outlets eventually to talk about that story or angle more than they were before, but of course, not necessarily mentioning you. So, as a company, then it produces an interesting problem. So, you know, earlier this year, uh, we had a brown and black forum with uh, Bernie Sanders, Martin O'Malley, and Hillary Clinton uh, in Iowa. And one of the things we found is we asked a question, we had a, a young student in Iowa stand up and ask Hillary Clinton, Uh, name a time you benefited from white privilege. This was not a question that had been associated with the election at that point. You know, two months later, uh, Anderson Cooper's asking the Democratic candidates that question in a debate. You know, as a brand, how do we claim that, right? That's one of the difficulties. So we're interested in tools like Media Cloud from that perspective to say, can we find instances where it's not mentions of fusion, but we can see a shift in the discussion in the media you know, at that same event, we asked Bernie Sanders a question about reparations, which yeah. uh, went down an interesting line that led to some <laughs> coverage afterward. But again, the coverage doesn't mention, oh, you know, in a discussion first started at the Fusion Brown and Black Forum, uh, you know, and uh, but but we're also interested in how we can use tools like this for stories, right, as a storytelling device to understand frames. Uh, and so working with uh, the Ethan's team there. Speaking of Media Lab teams that we're working with, one of the teams that we've been working with uh, uh, is the uh, Electome project at, the, uh, um, at the, the Laboratory for Social Machines at MIT. So at the Iowa Brown and Black Forum, one of the things we wanted to figure out is at our own event, what do people react most to on Twitter and how could we understand that? This project, uh, through partnership with Twitter, brings in data and tracks how ideas are performing uh, in the media landscape. So, you know, what's the horse race of ideas rather than the candidates? What issues and subtopics within those issues are people really talking about? And we've had a chance, uh, uh, Daniel McLaughlin, one of our data journalist experts is is here in attendance. And uh, we've had opportunity to use the Electome Project for a few different stories so far, just to give you the headlines of examples. They came out with, Bill and his team came out with the civility index, which is to say, in tracking tweets, how do we understand which topics and which subtopics uh, and which candidates are driving certain types of conversations and how can we make sense of it? And so for us, uh, you know, we wanted to dig in deep to figure out what are the issues and the candidates that really bring out um, uh, insults and uh, obscenities, et cetera. Um, we did another project that was uh, uh, with their data on understanding the subtopics within immigration within immigration over time and to start to unpack um, how people were talking about immigration and how uh, different things in the news cycle or from the candidates changed the course of the conversation about immigration. So as you might imagine, there was a certain instance where a set of conversations were happening and then suddenly those disappeared and the wall became the discussion. And to be able to see through Twitter data that narrative and how these different frames through which we could talk about immigration shift uh, uh, helped drive some of those stories. We've also been working a lot, there's a project at the Internet Archive called the Political TV Ad Archive uh, and have done some interesting work with uh, with their data. So one was understanding who the candidates, who the different campaigns were going after by looking at which shows they were buying the most ads during because the, if you haven't checked it out, the political TV ad archive, very interesting project to follow. And they track um, all the ads that the candidates are running and also through uh, partnerships with certain local markets, uh, tracking which shows they run and how frequently and which version of the ad runs in which city, et cetera, et cetera. So for us it was, you know, we can kind of backtrack and try to unpack understanding the strategy of the campaigns through where they're buying their ads who they're targeting. Um, similarly, we did one uh, as the Republican Super PAC started to go after Donald Trump as a candidate in some of the primary battleground states to understand what was their strategy, right? Who are, the, who are these groups attacking Trump in what ways by focusing on some of those battleground states? And, you know, in this case, we have, uh, you know, Daniel and some of his colleagues, uh, we're a small, nimble team and so one of the things that we're trying to figure out, the, our role as value-add, is to say there are only so many projects we can wholly do in-house. How can we find and help you manage relationships with outside partners who have big, you know, a big set of data scientists, perhaps, have a big team, but don't have the storytelling outlet, are looking for journalists who can translate that data, and how do we bring, uh, ultimately bring the two together? How many of you have ever heard of the Black Youth Project at the University of Chicago? Any of you guys familiar with them? knew Sasha would be? (laughs) Uh, They've started a new survey just uh, in the last three months, which is focused on um, the, uh, it's called the Gen Forward Survey. It's focused on understanding specifically, imagine like a pew for young adults, right? I mean, focused wholly on, on young adults in the US. So they're trying to understand on a monthly basis what are, how, right now, of course, I think out of the maybe 50 or 60 questions they ask about half of them about the election. But how are young people thinking about um, issues in the news, uh, issues that we care about? And, and their sample size, um, uh, minimum uh, 7, 1,750 folks a month, and uh, minimum 500 white Americans, 500 African Americans, 500 Latino Americans, 250. Asian Americans, so that there can also be some comparison across those groups to understand, hey, when an issue comes about like uh, gun violence, that the reactions of different racial communities may be quite different to some of these issues, and you know, questions about policing practices, of course, may see you know vast differences in the answers uh, broken down. Uh, uh, so these are a few of the stories. What happened in this case? Jen, uh, Jen Forward has a partnership with the AP. They want to get that data out there as broadly as possible but on the other hand um, the you know the ap is not necessarily the focused on outlets that target the audience they're surveying so one of their concerns they didn't put it this way but i will (laughs) is you know you don't want to tell the stories of what you know young diverse america thinks to old white readers and how do we make sure we are also trying to tell those stories back to uh, the audiences that are being surveyed and outlets that are focused on the demographic of those audiences. So you know, these are a few of the stories that we've produced so far uh, with these guys, but uh, you know, highly recommend you guys check out their project. In this case, it's not a paid relationship of any sort. There's no funding. It's just sort of connecting the dots that, uh, that we, have the, you know, we have an audience who would really be interested uh, in the stories these guys tell. We do a lot of work increasingly with foundations. Um, So we're doing a a big project called Rise Up Be Heard. It is a fellowship uh, for uh, eight young activists and eight young journalists in California through the California Endowment uh, who are focused on understanding community health in their communities throughout California. So they're mentored by uh, Fusion uh, editors and journalists and uh, are kind of came together to tell stories over the course of six months. And one of the things we did with the USC Civic Paths team is do a big brainstorm uh, about imagining what um, I alluded to this earlier, imagining what the future of community health could be in California, and then have more solutions-oriented journalism or a discussion that's not you know, deploring the conditions of today, but is also about what might we do to achieve a better tomorrow. And so as part of that project, we're launching an interactive soon that kind of at the center of the interactive is uh, to have... Uh, people from their communities also contribute vision. So there'll be an animation that shows collectively what the fellows imagine, what the future could look like in their communities, uh, and then to invite uh, responses. That could either be over social media or through using Vojo, also having a call-in number so that people can call in, and leave audio stories. Uh, for instance, uh, making sure that we don't leave out people who uh, don't have great broadband internet service or you know, easy use of smartphones where we're asking them to record a video that sort of thing. Uh, We've been most recently with with, uh, the Future of News group uh, at the Media Lab been thinking about content management systems. What's the future of of CMS platforms in in the news industry and how it technically allows for the type of storytelling we want to do. So our CTO and head of product and Federico and I came up and uh, joined a bunch of other folks from newsrooms that Matt Carroll brought together and uh, thought about what the future of uh, CMS might look like. And now we're, you know, thinking about working with Matt and uh, Knight to say, coming out of that event, what can we do? What can we do? And, uh, uh, you know, that's the kind of long lead project that we end up often working on. Uh, Federico, maybe you can say a bit about some of the uh, new publishing engagement platforms. We spend a lot of time of experimenting. Yeah, <laughs> we've tried, we've tried
3: to play around with some uh, projects that Came out of the of uh, the MIT lab. Vojo uh, is the one that someone's mentioning for the Rise Up uh, event, where they allow uh, people who don't have access to internet to engage with a, with a, a general conversation in a subject. In this case, obviously, uh, is the public health uh, in California.
1: And I, you know, I'll also say too, there's something, and uh, Sasha will say, could say this much more elegantly than I could. Uh, there's something about the quality of an audio story too, that captures a certain emotion, right? That a tweet or a, a, a short post wouldn't necessarily capture.
3: Yeah, we have, we have uh, tried as well with Ma- Media Breaker, which basically allows uh, young children in high school to play with uh, content and how to optimize it and how to play and crop it uh, with it, uh, all of it through fair use. So they just have to have, uh, for example, they've done, uh, uh, they call it the uh, break-a-tons, and uh, what they've done is with the Super Bowl, they have done one, and basically it's they're reimagining how would the Super Bowl look like through their eyes, and they have done the same with some political ads, with Ted Cruz uh, campaigns, and they basically, they create a toolkit that allows children to reimagine the content of uh, uh, mainstream media, and gives them some, uh, basically, literacy of uh, media. Natalie, I just
5: wanted you to clarify what you meant by optimizing content.
3: So yeah, well, more, more than optimizing is actually allowing them to play with it and be uh, responsible of the content that they're creating and see that it's not only a one-way communication from the media to them, but they can actually use it and tell the message back to them through, the basically, the repackaging of fair use of uh, content through fair use. So it's, you're, you're right, it's not optimizing, but it's basically using the mainstream content to tell their story and not only make it a one way conversation.
1: So, you know, that could be transformative in the sense of pushing back, or it could be transformative in the sense of augmenting. So, as we use uh, platforms like Fold or Deepstream, which are created by CMS and, and Media Lab uh, students and that are now breaking off into being their own. Deepstream is in an incubator here at MIT right now uh, to potentially launch as a platform. Deepstream is about how do you annotate not just live stream video, but also uh, on-demand video uh, to add context to what you're watching, which for a media company like ours is a very interesting question. We do all this great uh, journalism from our newsroom, but then we air, let's say, a debate. Could we annotate the debate by tacking on in real time News stories related to what the candidate's saying. So, as the candidate refers to their Latin American policy, uh, Univision's done a story, kind of critiquing that, fact-checking that. If candidates say things and we publish stories after story about how that refute what it is they're saying, how can we, you know, use platforms like this to create a more engaging experience? And from a business perspective, to also say, hey, we've got people for this video. Can we drive them deeper into the bench and catalog of, 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 of storytelling we've done? on that issue. One of the things we're thinking about right now, and, and uh, Media Breaker is part of it, is thinking about how to engage young voices in the classroom. Uh, and that's through, a, one of the things we're doing right now is through a partnership with the National Writing Project. Uh, they're doing something called Letters to the Next President. And yeah. Basically it's it,
3: it goes hand in hand with a, a campaign that we had a fusion that it's called Your Next President, where we get uh, people to s- ask uh, something to the next president on a video and use the hashtag dear next president and this project came along with the national writing project they're doing exact basically the same thing through a toolkit uh, at different high schools so we partnered with them and we basically created uh, a session of a live stream where we spoke about our experiences and we did a tweet chat with them as well explaining how we actually create and how we engage the community around this campaign
1: And and for us, uh, you know, one of the other things we're exploring is how do we work with uh, student publications at college campuses to take stories that a fusion audience, for instance, might care about that's only being reported on that local campus and bring those stories to a national audience. So we're we're doing a pilot project now right now with the WKU College Heights Herald that explores that. Natalie. Oh, uh, that's what I asked for, so...
5: Coming to this, but in case you're not, and also because I have to leave early, how do you see um, social media as you know, social media becoming more and more of a content distribution platform? You're starting to see you know content being streamed, you know, either regular you know linear content now being streamed through Twitter or Facebook or Viddy, um, and and there are all kinds of interactive tools that are built into those platforms that are that are about interacting. And so, how do you? How do you see some of these uh, initiatives in relation to some of the stuff that's happening in terms of how social media platforms are being used um, as content distribution platforms?
1: Yeah, well, there are a couple answers to that. One is we have a great team who manages the relationship with platforms that do great work when it comes to kind of piloting out often, Fusion's one of the brands that are often trying new features out that Facebook or a Twitter or a YouTube uh, is allowing because they know we have sort of a spirit of uh, uh, creation, but of course we're in those cases playing wholly in their spaces, right? So a Facebook or a YouTube or a Twitter aren't gonna launch new features to products unless it serves their primary business purpose, which is not necessarily ours, um, which is fine. I mean, you know, we have done some great experimentation with those with those platforms, uh, and I think it's, you know, for us it's of interest to think about the things that those platforms don't necessarily do, or if we wanna do those things, can we only do it on those platforms? Because of course, when you do something only on Twitter, you shut out anybody who doesn't use Twitter, or when you do something only on Facebook, you're sort of forcing people to go through a certain network site, uh, uh, and, and, and you know from a business perspective, too, I would say you know in the media industry in general, you know we have to balance both playing with the platforms where people are engaging with media content, but also making sure we don't only engage in those spaces because then you build businesses that are wholly beholden to uh, social network sites and distribution platforms that aren't yours. <laughs> Uh, and you know, and, it, and it's something to kind of balance out. So part part of our job, again, back to slow and fast culture, is to run a series of experiments that are less about the day-to-day production that we're doing today, but might explore questions that we don't want to lose track of, even as we're trying to, you know, if we're trying to push a piece we're doing today out to as many places as possible, then we're probably going to tell that story on our Facebook page, where we have, uh, you know, a massive following, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's it's very much balancing those strategies. Yes, sir.
0: Yeah, engagement, engagement is a buzzword, um, and basically what it means in the media industry is
1: uh, engaging with advertisers. That's where the mm-hmm. dollars are, and I'm wondering if you have a different model for engagement. Yeah, I, mean, I would say, I mean, all of the Fusion Media Group properties are ad-supported, so I will say we do and we don't, right? I mean, what pays the bills <laughs> is still gonna be that advertising. I think the, you know, the role of our group is to try to carve out the alternative meanings of those questions, which is to say, uh, not only do I mean in, in, you know, experimenting in ways that we engage people that run beyond, you know, it's also, not, it, even for things that are ad supported, it's thinking about the things that don't necessarily translate into how we sell ads today, but the types of engagement that there could very well be business models to build around but that aren't necessarily what's going to drive our 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 profit today so we work hand in hand with the teams who are trying to make sure today we're publishing stories in a way that are going to bring in maximum ad dollars but to know that perhaps the answer to some of these questions and this is sam talking not fusion uh that the some answer to some of these questions are probably going to be alternative ways that brand that that advertisers and publishers work together over time because what engagement ends up meaning you know, gets driven by certain ways that clicks and traffic can be measured. Uh, and, you know, and we're interested in finding alternative ways of, of thinking about that. So I would say, uh, you know, as an organization, we we are much like any media company in the sense of today's business models, but we're also very actively exploring all the other models that we have. Some of that is also through, you know, we have a social impact unit. So a lot of our stories, Even though we're trying to get funding for, you know, may ultimately come through foundation funding rather than advertiser funding. So there are also other even models when it comes to finding revenue for the stories that we want to tell uh, that we think about as well. And, And, you know, our job is to be kind of removed, one step removed, sensitive to the commercial needs of the organization, but also be one step removed to experiment without having to immediately figure out how does this get monetized today, to figure out what it might be and then figure out how it slots back into the production machine of a lot of our brands.
4: So um, I suppose there's lots of different ways of making things. There's you know, making something completely from scratch, blank canvas, you're building something like that game where uh, it takes a lot of time and effort to make something. And at the under, other end of the scale, you have making things which you can reuse as we're just touching on there or working with platforms. When do you decide that you're going to take an innovation and turn it into something which is reusable
3: i think when when it serves more than one platform that we're using or one group if we take the example of the gaming of rigged that's one model that it's going to serve for that documentary and that's it but if we think about your next president or letters to the next president where we develop a toolkit that might serve different high schools and colleges all over the country then we think about, okay, we need to scale here and we need the help of the rest of the of the company. But I think that the, the question is how that product or process or whatever that we're working helps the rest of the company, and if it doesn't, then we'll just focus on the department that we're working with.
1: Yeah, you know, I would say often the model we take is, well, it goes two ways. We meet with a lot of our internal groups. We hear questions that they're wrestling with or thinking with, so like in the instance of the game, it was, what if we did X, but ah, we don't know how we do that and figure out, okay, how could we try that? And then in that case, it's, let's try an experiment, see how it works. If it worked well, then we might turn that into a case study, take the groups across our portfolio. And it could be very literal. What are other ways we could use games? Or it could be more broad than that, which are what are other non-journalistic storytelling devices that could become a part of a journalism storytelling package. and you know, But then in other cases, it might be, here's an interesting platform or an interesting approach, and then we try to find the editorial team who's interested in it, and we run an experiment. But almost all cases for us, it is do a small experiment, learn from it. Uh, perhaps the learning is the outcome. Or it might be, how do we scale this out, right? Here's something. That, so with DeepStream, which came here from the Media Lab, you know, we have done things like we deep streamed the MIT virtually their conference. Here's a safe space, an experimental space for us to try things without worrying. Now, you know, soon that team is going to, as they come out of the accelerator, gonna meet with a lot of our video production daily staff to sort of present, here's what deep stream is, here's the experiments we've run, is there anything we could do that's more visible or, or, or public facing? And. You know, once they get into that realm, then eventually our group's not necessarily involved anymore, right? Our job was to sort of incubate, think about, build. And then when something seems ready for the operation more more broadly to, to kind of bring that back and in many cases hand it off. Even something like the game, right? By the time it got to the making of the game, Federico and I weren't very involved. <laughs> um, it was more kind of getting to that point. And then perhaps on the other end of it, the the postmortem the what went right, what went wrong, what can we learn from it, how do we scale it, we'll come back in and work with those teams. But that's how we're able to be involved in as many things as we're trying to be involved in when it's just, it's yeah, just
3: the two we, we work more. <laughs> as a, we work more as an internal consultant than actually owning the projects. So we come in, we consult, and then the experts on that field take over, and then we come back after the whole project has ended.
1: I'm going to let Matt go next because I think you may have to leave early. I don't remember. No,
4: actually, oh, say, you? <laughs> thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I'm just kind of curious how you do get involved with groups.
5: If they approach you, you approach them, and also once you do, once you are involved with a project, what is there a process for sort of brainstorming what kind of innovative things to do, or is it just sort of general brainstorming? How, how does that work?
3: I think it's both when we when someone tells us like the example of Rig, they came to us and said like We want to create something and then we brainstorm around but sometimes with dipstream was the opposite We have a the product and we said like who could this product serve and then we went inside the company and start And start trying to knock doors and see who would be interested in working with this since we don't own any projects We cannot force we, we can only suggest people if you're interested in working with this project and we need to find internal uh, 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 adopters that want to try this out. So it's a mix of both. We go and suggest some projects that we have been working ex- externally, but as well we listen
1: to the questions that they have and we brainstorm a- around an issue. One of the things we have, we have a, just a beautiful Excel sheet. <laughs> um, love right. Excel, I'm sure you guys do. No, but, but it basically breaks out, like here are all the initiatives we're running. Here are all the groups we're currently working with. Here are some groups that are on our radar that we really want to experiment with, but we don't have an internal client yet to work with us. And what I often do is as I meet a new team, as Federico meets a new team, uh, as a new editor, for instance, onboards, one of the things we send them, and my hope is to eventually actually work with HR to make this part of the process that would say, here. So just last week we had a new editor start at Fusion. I sent her that and she called me up and said, I want to hear about these eight groups. What, and so then the goal was just make them aware that these possibilities exist. And then wait until a spark hits. So, you know, yeah, very much depends. Or on the complete flip other side, sit down with a group and figure out if, you know, sometimes it's not about these partnerships or these deep, big experiments. It's also about the fact that we're, our minds are in other spaces a good portion of the time. And then just to sit down with the group and say, okay, here's this problem we've been, wrestling with. How do we think about it? And I use wrestling intentionally. One of the things that we came up with for Jorge Ramos's show uh, was as, as Donald Trump's rise was happening, as people were trying to make sense of the uh, climate of his rallies, uh, you know, I brought up that Trump had been uh, a performer in WWE in the past and has actually been involved in a major match at WrestleMania. And so the Jorge Ramos show ended up doing a whole show just sort of unpacking So in that case, I was excited. Like, here's what it's something I write about academically that doesn't on its surface have anything to do. Uh, But I even worked it in. So we were doing a big project on the Panama Papers. And uh, one of the questions our news team had is we're trying to reach young readers, uh, a lot of young readers of, of color, folks who don't necessarily feel spoken to by a lot of the traditional media industry. What are different ways we could find approaches into something like the Panama Papers, right? Which get very complicated. Instantly. And we were talking in this brainstorm uh, about the, the movie The Big Short and how they had all these ways of explaining complex financial ideas. And you know, we're not necessarily going to get A-level actors <laughs> to pop in and do something for this investigative series we're doing. I said, well why don't we find some really fun angles in? So speaking of angles, this is a porn star who says uh, you know, explains how anom- anonymous shell companies are screwing you. Uh, And it's fun kind of video, in this case for social, but it becomes a a lighthearted entry point into. So in this case, would I call this innovation in the grand sense of, uh, you know, technological experimentation? No. Um, But just just for kicks, I will even uh, play back to the wrestling angle. Let's have pro wrestler Hillbilly Jim from Bowling Green, Kentucky, (laughs) explain Shell Corporations to you.
6: You know, I made a ton of money as a wrestler. What if I told you there was a way to hide that ton of money? Someplace else, keep it away from anyone chasing it? And here's the crazy part. Not pay taxes on any of it. It's called a shell company. A fancy lawyer will set one up for you. Now, the lawyer, he establishes the company, usually in some exotic, faraway place like Nevis, or maybe the Cayman Islands, or maybe even Panama. Now, they got privacy laws in those places that protect you in case the Popo come a around and knockin'. They call these countries tax havens. Now listen, listen up real good, y'all. Your shell company has a bank account, but your name ain't on that bank account. You're invisible. So when your lady comes looking for that uh, extra 20 grand you made in Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in uh, some other place like Panama or Nevis, wherever the f*** that is. Next time you're looking for a place to park that extra cash. Remember what Hillbilly Jim told you about shell companies? They're a body slam <coughs> in your investment portfolio, and they're legal. Jesus. IRS. I ain't taking that.
1: You know, so, so in this case, I mean, part of the value we look to provide is also very, you know, literal and and perhaps uh, kind of direct uh, to a story that we're currently working on and that hopefully uh, is is, uh, fun as well. Um, I believe you had a question, Lynn. I did. Um,
5: Some of you were responding
4: to him and it occurred to me, what's the role of failure uh, in innovation? A.G. Laughlin, formerly of, of Procter & Gamble, talked a lot about failure as an integral and inescapable part of failure and that if, or an inescapable part of innovation that if you really wanted to innovate you had to be failing 50% of the time or you weren't trying hard enough. And I was curious about what your corporate culture or mandate uh, is. I think
3: we're lucky enough, unfortunate enough that they don't mind us failing as long as we have some learning and that's 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 the important part. We can fail with a project. We can fail, and that's the other thing that failure it might mean different thing. Like if we didn't get the number of views we wanted, did we fail? Probably yes or no. It's 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 relative. So I think that we're lucky enough that we have a sort of safe haven of, of we can fail. But what we do is we learn from those experiments or those failures and and try to not and try to better uh, understand what we did wrong and. Translated to different companies, but yeah, obviously there's there's space to to fail and it's a corporate mandate that we can fail And I think that that's what makes us so comfortable around this sort of experiments if they if they don't work at the end of the day What we have invested is our time and that's it.
1: Well, I'm also, you know, on the flip side I'm worried about the fetishization of failure that comes out of Silicon Valley That there's this idea that I mean if you enter a culture where there's no such thing as failure well, you know, that, that's where you get terms like creative ROI, right? Yeah. Where it's like, ah, nothing, you know. And, and for us, so I think, but if, it, you know, it all depends on what your objectives are. So one of the things that I'm most concerned about, it gets back to the gentleman's question earlier about how the media industry works, which is internally we have to be very careful about what set of metrics get applied to our function because I don't want to ever fail. Um, but that means I'm defining success saying that trying an experiment and it not going the way you would like for it to and learning something from it is not a failure at all. That was the objective from the beginning. And that, you know, I think that's what Laffley meant, for instance, when we're talking about a culture of failure. Uh, and, you know, part of the function of our group is to be that place where we can try stuff out before we want to try it out on a grander stage uh, and to explore what might be and learn and learn from it, Sasha.
4: Yeah, I guess just like linking this this conversation about failure and what you can learn, and as for the larger vision that you presented at the beginning of, you know, Fusion is this place where you're doing really interesting innovation in social justice journalism, and you're trying to develop relationships to activist communities and groups that know an issue area really deeply. I'm thinking about, um, like, the, over the last decade, a couple of other uh, media outfits that attempted to do something similar. And I'm curious about how, what, whether you what you can learn from them, and the three that I'm thinking of, I'm, I'm sure there's many more. But so one is Telesur. a lot of people who came out of DIY sort of activist media making in the global justice movement were very excited when Telesur launched, and it was like, oh, this moment where there's going to be you know there's going to be money coming from a state-backed but you know left uh, you know news hemispheric news outlet, and they're going to bring in all these activist media makers to do stuff, and you know, it's nothing is a complete, or unqualified failure. But a lot of folks in circles that I know, anyway, ended up very, very disappointed because of what they felt like was not, maybe not surprisingly, um, you know, very hierarchical editorial control over uh, the stuff that they were allowed to do. So People ended up very unhappy with their relationship with um, with the mothership uh, when trying to do, say, you know, social justice stories from the U.S. Even though there was a whole program series about the belly of the beast uh, that they were funding, it ended up in that way you know activist communities were not looking to it Al Jazeera was another place that tried to do something I think in a lot of ways very similar to what you know you all are doing Al Jazeera online um, the stream uh, you know these programs that were partly about you know they took a different model which was they weren't necessarily hiring people from the activist media world but they were bringing people on a lot uh, and they were doing interesting kinds of outreach and then they you know they collapsed, and I think that's a failure because I guess they, they didn't figure out how to really make it profitable. So when, you know, they had invested a fair amount of money, uh, which was again sort of backed by oil money from a nation state, um, but they no. couldn't figure out how to make it sustainable. And then the third one, um, um, you know, that I'm thinking of is Vice. And what Vice did, they took a different strategy, and they hired, they started hiring people who came out of different social movements. So like Tim, you know, Tim Cast. Uh, Tim Cool, who came out of Occupy Wall Street, was the most visible live streamer. Then got hired, to, you know, to run stuff there. Um, but I think where they failed is they sort of, I mean, they do a lot of stuff. that's interesting, but they've also sort of generated sort of machista culture of shock value stuff that I think a lot of people feel like they're not doing a good job representing honestly and fully. You know, a lot of the social struggles that that uh, that, that movement media makers sort of come out of. They're they're going for you, you know
1: what I'm saying oh, I, uh, okay. absolutely so I'm do. What, what,
4: what can you do differently than these three failed attempts to do uh, to bridge activist media uh, and, and
1: mainstream uh... so, so two two answers. One is we're wondering that too and <laughs> And Scotty'll answer the rest of not. So. <laughs> um, Federico, I'll let you do you have any <laughs> remarks in particular, I have a few. But... I think that it's being more cautious with the
3: relationship with the activists and listening to them more than actually have a rigid structure and say just this is the way we do it. I think that Vice does sort of that. It's like you always have a central power taking control over the editorial. Here we want to listen more and co-create with them and hear untold stories from their part but I think that it's a really complicated matter and as Sam was saying, like we don't have a definite answer. I think that it's being more open to their input and try to make them part of the whole process.
1: Well, yeah, I think it's realizing we're a media business first and yeah. not shying away from that, not having, you know, it's like in the, somebody said about the early days of like Web 1.0, like everybody describing their e-commerce site for toilet paper as if it's going to change humanity, right? That there's this sort of deep you know, releasing, I don't know. I better not get into that toilet paper. but, um, but yeah. <laughs> but the but the general idea, I think, of being realistic about our orientation, framing it in that way, realizing we have to be a media business first, we're a for-profit journalism organization, that we also want to find as many ways as we can to work with activist groups, to tell interesting stories, tell underreported stories, but also package those or blend those in in a way that allows us to, you know, scale as a business. We're on a TV network. I mean, one of the great things, and of course Vice now has a TV network, one of the great things about being both a digital publication and a TV network is that being a TV network still brings with it a certain semi-stable round of revenue, which is from, from subscribers that you know you're going to get, while that may fluctuate some, you're going to get X amount a year as a baseline, no matter what you sell in your digital ad inventory or the other ways you make money, we can start with this. And so launching from the beginning as both a TV network and a digital publication, and I'm speaking now just for Fusion, um, is a help. The other thing is you know, when Fusion launched, there was no Fusion Media Group. It's helpful to have a Fusion Media Group, which is to say the Fusion brand in particular doesn't have to be everything that we have these other sister brands. They're united in that they're almost all focusing on kind of a diverse range of America. They're all younger skewing demographics wise, but we have Gizmodo and we have The Onion and we have X and Y. And so Fusion doesn't have to be a be all and catch all brand. And many of the things we want to do might fall under one of the other brands. So I think it allows Fusion to then you know, carve off, not a niche in the sense that we want it to be a brand that reaches a lot of people, but that it can have a distinct editorial focus and really drill down on that focus um, in a way that I think helps. You know, and the other thing I'll say is that it's a blend of trying to reach people who really care about the topics we cover, but one of the ways I like to frame it when you're thinking about activists as uh, one of our audiences is to create content for them and to also create content for them to share with the people in their lives who care about it less than they do. And to think about how some of our stories, right, for an activist audience would be a disappointment for them as the target audience, right? That it doesn't go into the issue very deeply, that, but it, you know, we wanna produce those stories that'll reach a casual audience on those issues and then also, so one of the measures we have internally, editorially, is to think about the blend of the total stories we have and also that we're including a healthy dose every week of kind of in-depth journalism that we're balancing out having quick social stories that we often tell only on, you know, Instagram or Facebook alongside an investigation that's going for six or nine months and to kind of balance those out. Because in some cases it may be, hey, the majority of our ad revenue will come from some of the stuff that we run in platforms, but that is also what helps subsidize, uh, you know, in-depth investigative journalism as well. But I think that'll be an evolving question uh, and to try to learn a lot from you know we could b- move pivot into that discussion as well with the demise of, of pivot to say how do we learn from a lot of these other orientations which is also to say we care about social justice issues but not necessarily to flag ourselves as an activist brand only right a lot of our people come from traditional newsroom we do a lot of stuff on pop and culture and and trying to blend in you know i often say like find a fun way into a serious topic or find a serious question from a fun topic. So often our newsroom is saying, here's something in the news, what's an interesting identity question or social justice question we could ask in relation to this Netflix series? Or it might be, you know, here's the Panama Papers, but for people who don't, aren't gonna see old oh, Panama Papers, I'm setting my DVR, um, <laughs> what are ways to kind of engage people in that discussion in a, in a fun way? You know, so for us, the classroom becomes a really interesting incubator. I, one of the things our group really wants to focus on in the coming year is to think about how we partner with high school and college educators and trying things out in a college classroom where we have a group that likely don't necessarily know who we are yet but are in our target demographic, are not necessarily activist-oriented, but to figure out how we you know, tell stories in a way that engages them and then invites them to participate. Any other questions at the moment? We'll go we'll go here and then we'll go back to our previous question.
5: Tel are probably are
0: probably pretty big for Univision, probably not so much no. for Fusion, but you know for the current company. And telenovelas have been around for well, to 60 years and it doesn't seem like the genre has it's a classic genre and it hasn't probably seen a lot of change. You know, mm-hmm. there's a winning formula and you know, there's stuff produced according to this formula. You guys are and you guys are in the position to do something you know, to take it forward,
1: uh, you know. I <laughs> mean, <laughs> you know, especially no, no. you, so you know, since you wrote, you know, basically a book on stuff. Uh,
0: well, <laughs> soaps so, and, you know. What are some of the ways in which still novellas can evolve in, in, in the light of your, you know, in the light of your mission of bringing young audiences to, you know, to the
4: channel? <laughs> That's your son. <Harrison>.
1: Okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, I think there, I think there are a few things to explore there. Um, not surprisingly, I mean, the first thing is to say, our job back to experimentation, right? What we don't want to do is say, come, we're going to come in, reimagine the novella, and come in and break, you know, one of the most profitable backbones of what's fueling all the experimentation that we do, right? Those novellas pay a lot of bills, and you know, and, and so yeah, you know, the other thing to realize for us, for instance, is we don't produce our novellas our novellas are imported, right? So a lot of the novellas we run are produced by Televisa, which is a minority owner in Univision, uh, are produced, you know, I think we sometimes bring in novellas from Columbia and other yeah. places as well. Um, but a few things have happened. First of all, the my boss, our boss, our boss uh, <laughs> is a guy named Isaac Lee. Uh, he was originally a journalist from Columbia who came to the U.S. Uh, in, worked in, after working in magazines, worked in Univision News, kind of rose up the ranks there. And because Univision News, one important thing to realize about Univision is Univision News produced almost all the original content that Univision produced, right? Univision is mostly a distribution and ad sales company, traditionally. All of its content other than news was imported um, to a Latin American audience, uh, a Latino American audience. So for us, as we started thinking about what the future of Univision might be, all these questions fell under Isaac's realm. So Isaac became the the head of Univision News but also the head of all digital content that Univision was producing, whether it's news or not. The head of Univision Digital. He's the, he was the person who came up with the idea for Fusion and he is now the CEO of Fusion Media Group in addition to Univision News and Univision Digital. And then just what, two months ago maybe? Yeah. He was named the head of Univision Entertainment which includes, of course, the novella. So this is a question that's highly of interest to me. Uh, you know, you can unpack that it's a you know question Univision wants to think about, the very question you posed. Uh, and, you know, I think part of the answer is looking into um, why uh, U.S. soaps failed, you know, why, U, why, why U.S. soaps have struggled, which is, uh, and what to learn from that. I think part of it, too, is look at a lot of the great experimentation that's happening digitally. So... Um, to think about, uh, you know, one of the series you mentioned them earlier is to think about groups like Wise Entertainment, which does East Los High on Hulu uh, that Mauricio and Katie uh, Mota uh, own. Uh, and to think about, okay, here are teen dramas focused again on social justice issues, some of the same orientation as soaps uh, on a, you know, a, an alternative form of distribution, all in English, but both in front of and behind the, the camera, mostly uh, Latino talent. And what can we learn from projects like that, right? What what we're not going to do is take those novellas off the air and put on things like East Los Hyde Day, but we have to be exploring those questions because then we may soon. Here's a big experiment we're doing this month. Federico and I had nothing to do with this, but we're taking Narcos. How many of you have watched Narcos on Netflix? Narcos is now going to run on Univision in primetime. It's running. uh, Right now, yeah. It started in late August. And so the idea is how do we create a partnership with Netflix to run last season, on broadcast, which I think is the first time Netflix has struck a deal like this, right? And And you know I guess the subtitles switch, right? So you're um, <laughs> and thinking about you know what what future models does that create? because I, you know, we can imagine that uh, the interest, especially as uh, more of the Latin American population speak English primarily, that you have a lot of people who you know, are ethnically from, Latin America but who don't have that shared language uh, together that that changes the nature and fabric of what Univision is as a company over time and that model for instance of you know being a distributor of novellas from elsewhere may you know will still be a part of that equation but it's not going to be the solution to that equation so I think you know the question of what is the 21st century uh, soap in a Univision context. I would say that a lot of indie, I mean, the other thing that happened in the U.S. context is all these people who worked for the U.S. soap operas that went out of business, who knew how to make cheap, fast TV, moved to digital uh, series, right? And they're they're the talent behind a lot of really interesting, dramatic, fictional series online and a lot of the experimentation in that place. So, you know, again, as Sam speaking, not Univision, I think, you know, keeping an eye on that realm uh, would be one of the the answers or solutions. I wanted to ask about another uh, buzzword. uh, uh, Social justice journalism, which I think uh, means uh, partisan journalism. Uh And and, and, uh, so I'm wondering
0: how much you're influenced by probably what's the most successful partisan journalism,
1: Fox News, Mm -hmm. which generates, I think, $20 billion of profit a year. And how much does that come into play in, um, you know, looking at what you can do? do you any thoughts on that one? We'll with... So, you know, I mean, our most prominent personality is a guy named Jorge yeah. Ramos, who a lot of people would say, All right, <laughs> we think so too. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, who a lot of people would, would critique as being a partisan journalist. You know, I think the question becomes unpacking what partisan means, and you know, one of the things that we hold is that you know, objectivity and uh, kind of neutrality aren't the same thing, for instance. So that is to say that if we're dealing, for instance, with human rights issues, that we, or if we're dealing with climate change, that to give equal time to people who feel climate change does or doesn't exist, I don't think is objective journalism, that objective journalism is often about certain facts. And you know, we may have an admitted uh, bias, uh, if you call it that, when it comes to certain human rights issues that we would say, you know, we believe that, you know, as a moral stance that, uh, you know, no matter who you love, you are, you know, you should have equal rights in this country. Uh, that may, from some, be considered a partisan stance. So I think... I'm not partisan
0: no. is bad. Yeah, partisan but, is
1: power and ab- Absolutely. Concerned. Well, and it, and it gets, but it gets to that model, which is to say, you know, I don't feel as an organization... Fusion Media Group has the, you know, would compare ourselves to a Fox News, but detractors might. You know, I think we would say, we still, can. you know, our folks come from a wide range of newsrooms, both in the U.S. and throughout uh, Central and South America, and, you know, would consider themselves journalists first. But there's also that idea that as a journalist, you put some of yourself and your tone into the story, that what you get with the sort of neutral tone of a lot of American journalism Is sort of you know is masking perhaps the orientation or the opinion of folks in a way that may not always be helpful and so that isn't to say that all of our stories are voice or perspective stories but to say that if you think of a personality like Jorge that he will be sort of you know upfront about his orientation if you think about Univision as a company it's been often about representing a certain audience and I think trying to very objectively present the news to that audience but if you were to talking to a Univision audience or if you talking to a Univision journalist about a question like building a wall or you know deporting uh, immigrants that that is not a question that they're going to come in, back with on a neutral tone but that you know I think we would still say that that is an objective stance there's a really interesting Jorge was on Bill O'Reilly at one point and if you've never seen it it's a really interesting back and forth of these two world views, where both are sort of asking the other, how can you call yourself a journalist? <laughs> um, but it gets at both, you know, how on the one hand you could lump these two media figures together, or you could say, here are two very different versions of kind of a journalist with a, with a defined POV. And, and I think it's, you know, it, it's... Fac- I, I'm personally very inspired by the way Jorge handles it. For instance, his daughter works for the Clinton campaign, and he will start any segment where he is, for instance, when he interviewed Hillary Clinton or when he's talking about election issues, when he's moderating a debate, you know, my daughter works for the Clinton campaign. I'm going to say that up front. Uh, I have, you know, and so there's often that sort of, you know, I come at it from this angle. Um, There's a great interview he did with President Obama where, you know, he calls him the deporter-in-chief and says a lot of my community, a lot of the people who, the, the community we serve, look at a president who has by far compared to his predecessors deported more you know and, and so I think that's an interesting model where, you know, that doesn't fit the mold of neutral journalism, but it also you know, kind of leads to that call that, that that Jorge has often said, which is journalism is about sort of, you know, fighting power and corruption. And keep in mind many of Univision's journalists are journalists who originally came from other countries where they were fighting powerful regimes and in many cases came to the US in order to be able to safely do the work that they do. The number of people I've met in the Univision newsroom who have been held at gunpoint with their families at some point by a drug cartel None, you know, is more than one, which is you know quite shocking from a U.S. context, but to understand that sort of orientation to check to power. So one of the things Jorge also does is he interviews people are running for office or as they're entering office, Latin American leaders, and will ask them how much money they have in their bank account and try to get them to go on the record so that he can then ask them as they're leaving <laughs> how much money they have in their bank account. And, you know, to me that is a sort of, uh, uh, again, an orientation as a, as a brand that, that is interesting. We also, are any of you familiar with Bassam Youssef? So Bassem Youssef works for us and has produced a series recently called The Democracy Handbook. He also did our convention coverage. He was called the Egyptian John Stewart. So, uh, you know, he has now moved to the U.S. And, uh, you know, so one of the other things we're exploring is, you know, very much in the vein of the John Olivers and and John Stewarts of the world. How does comedy play a role perhaps as serious journalism or as public intellectualism in a way of a sort? And you know, are there deeper truths you can get through to through that conceit? So in the Democracy Handbook, the conceit is Basam Yusuf comes to America from a, com- a country trying to figure out democracy to the ideal of democracy. And then episode by episode, of course, gets increasingly beaten down and flummoxed and perplexed by what he finds. And my favorite one is uh, that his idea of, well, we don't have an illegal immigration problem in Egypt because who would want to sneak across the border into Egypt. So, but then he talks about all these things that are going wrong in the U.S., the failing roads, the DER infrastructure. He goes to Flint and asks them about their illegal immigration problem, and they, you know, they laugh, and he says, why don't people, if Americans really want to fight it, don't take selfies in your nightclubs. Take selfies, you know, with a crumbling bridge behind you, and, you know, make Flint instead of Hollywood or." your capital and then your Im- illegal immigration problem will disappear immediately. But I think part of it too is that, again, you know, I think we would consider the onion, for instance, in our vision of journalism, that, that, that humor, uh, you know, a lot of these different angles are, are all about ultimately getting at some truth, but that's my soapbox version. Any other questions that folks have?
2: Yes. I have a nomination for a theory on why Americans from this Country, soap operas are not interesting. When I was a kid and I came from Mexico and I was used to watching telenovelas, my sister and I would say, man, this is so boring because they never end. Uh-huh. Never end. Or at least they didn't seem to end to us. And that was extremely boring. Plus, you know, they, don't, they just don't have the pulp thing. But like if you could read you know, if you could do like an acid telenovela, that would be super cool. But like a real one, not a crappy
1: one that's just, you know, the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things, and you'll have to meet up with Lynn afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Lynn, Lynn's, written a, Lynn's written a great essay here in the front row about, uh, for our book, about um, how soaps inspired a lot of U.S. primetime storytelling trope, so that you could argue that most of what we would consider quality TV today are more soap operas than they are kind of traditional primetime dramas. Ensemble cast, story arcs that extend and go on, and one episode continues into the next. Now, they're, in every case, more like the telenovela in the sense that they have a defined end, right? So the essay I'm working on right now, you know, like the essay I'm working on right now about... um, finales is to say the hardest thing in the world is to end a U.S. style soap opera because the whole premise, as you've stated, is that the show never ends. So how do you end it if a show that people have grown up watching? But I would liken a U.S. soap opera more to Red Sox fandom or (laughs) (laughs) even even political news. Yeah, well, in a way, it just
2: becomes because I mean a lot of telenovelas have a similar a similar
1: cast. Yeah, similar well it's more like American movie Horror movie. Story or one right, movie. if you think of American Horror Story or American Crime where you have an ensemble cast who get together every year and tell a new story and it's a lot of the same people, it's kind of an interesting model. But, but what, by comparing it to the Red Sox or even I would say like being a political news junkie, the general idea of the soap opera was here is a fandom or pro wrestling, same thing. You grow up a wrestling fan, your kids watch it you're going to be dead, and the you know the pro wrestling stars are going to continue on, or the Red Sox will continue on, and you have this very different relationship than you do, I think, with, for instance, a, a traditional novella where that story, kind of comes and goes at a certain point, in your life. So I think it's really interesting. I'm I'm really interested that when it comes to the future of storytelling, which is to say, what are all the ways? Because I would say that we as a new media business, are very much in the U.S. soap opera style format, which is the story of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and George W. Bush and the Bush family and Ronald Reagan is a story that has evolved over decades that takes new twists and turns. They wrote Colin Powell off the show and now he's back as a recurring character (laughs) because of the email scandal. And it, you know. For who? The only reason
2: why post-truth politics works is because some people don't actually retain that continuity. Mm-hmm. Maybe you do, but I think that's another that brings up another one of the points. why that the novenas are you know so popular in Mexico is because they also represent stories that people can relate to. Mm-hmm. And I think that somebody like you know Donald Trump, uh, you know part of his maneuver is just. You know, appealing to something that people can relate to, even though it's a bunch
1: of BS. Well, if you think of comedy as fact-checking journalism as well, I mean, one of the common tropes of, for instance, The Daily Show, is right to compare current versions of the candidate to prior ones, and this is very much again like the engagement of a traditional fan in a genre like U.S. soap operas, which is say you critique the writers. Comic books, another great example, where you know Marvel used to give out the No Prize. The joke, of course, was that there was no prize. Um, To fans who would find continuity errors and then try to come up with a logical explanation to fix them. So Peter Parker eats pistachio ice cream, but 200 issues ago, we've established he's allergic to nuts, I don't know. Uh, And suddenly, you know, a fan writes in, catches the continuity error, and fixes it. Uh, Paul Levitz at DC Comics has talked about the difference between sincere and insincere mistakes. So an insin- a sincere mistake would be if, a, you know, you could apply this to a candidate. If a candidate talks over time and they're speaking inseparaneously, perhaps they will occasionally say something slightly different than what they've said before. And we might call that out, but also excuse it, because in the realm of public speaking, that's going to happen. An insincere mistake would be Glenn Beck, when he was at CNN, did a piece about how the American healthcare system uh, is deplorable and falling apart. And then, and, uh, you know, Obamacare era on Fox News does a segment about how America has the best healthcare system in the world and Obamacare is destroying it. Now that seems to be an insincere continuity error and mistake because here are two fundamentally different versions of reality from the same character in a short amount of time. I think they were literally one year apart. Uh, that got called out, and that to me is interesting to read. I often think about these things because my back, part of my background is in fan studies, to think about these things through the lens of how entertainment audiences often sort of react to and check the continuities of. But I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole <laughs> of soap operas and novellas, because many of you may not have come here specifically for that, and if you are upset about how much time we spent on it, it's all Ilya's fault, because he asked a novellas question. <laughs> we'll, we'll take that. will we'll, we'll take we'll take that one offline uh, to make sure we have time for other people's questions. Like Andres has a question.
2: I am interested.
1: In the- <laughs> <laughs> uh, he didn't have a question, by the way. So, one. well, look at that. All right, I've been good. In the-, in the issue of like uh, how you uh, are going are going to engage students uh, in the content that you produce
0: and the kind of licenses that you have been able to use for this content, for instance, with the tool of the lamp, uh, Mm -hmm. this media breaker. Have you thought in trying like creative commons licenses uh, that encourage more remix or mashups, things like
1: that? We have have had some of those discussions as a company and I'm really interested in provoking more. Um, The, you know, I can't speak for Univision's lawyers, right? Um, but I think, you know, in our case, in a lot of the experiments that we're doing, it's very much kind of carving out and and pushing what that fair use is. We as a brand are often talking back. You know, you can imagine using a tool like DeepStream to, you know, sort of fact check or push against, right? Because you could run a DeepStream of somebody else's stream. So could you imagine, like, taking a live stream? I'm not suggesting we would ever do this, but could you imagine, you know, Fusion or Univision taking the live stream of another media outlet's show and actually using Deepstream to sort of pop content over the top of that that questions and counters the narrative of what you're watching, you know, uh, that, you know, or imagine in a moment of Oscars So White, having an annotated version of the Oscars where you're kind of putting a lens over watching the Oscars that asks interesting questions that fall very much, I think, under a fair use sort of uh, approach, especially if you're using a, you know, a technology like this where you're not actually capturing someone's feed and then rebroadcasting of it, putting a lens over it. In our case, the classroom becomes a great place to explore some of these questions and to encourage that exploration. And I'm often encouraging for people to critique and criticize and talk back to our stories, uh, because I know that if I get a letter from our lawyers, at least, you know, the teachers who agreed to work with us wouldn't be in hot water, I'd be. Um, but I think, you know, the LAMP is a great example where they say, as a nonprofit, what they hope is they get sued. Um, because that allows them, you know, they get pro bono legal representation. That allows them to often fight back against right holders in ways that teachers would feel, feel powerless. So often, you know, part of what the LAMP, as an example, provides is when teachers use Media Breaker to say, we want your students to explore fair use ways of talking back to the media do it through our platform and then we'll be there to sort of fight the battle if someone tries to bring a copyright challenge to the way you talk back. But I think that ultimately gets to kind of carving out ways that you encourage that type of participation and exploration. And if we as a brand are often talking back to other media outlets, I think we in return want to see people talking back to our stuff, um, right? Because that's our worldview, or else we're hypocritical. Any other questions before we uh, move to the more informal discussion of the day, since we're about 10 of 7? <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for yeah. joining us. Thanks. Thanks you much.
2: Thanks.